The second reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 14, starting at verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day, because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth, because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, Go out among the men and tell them, Each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, Let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, Let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, Shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lives with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, Cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, 
and now I must die. Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan... Ishvi and Malkishua. The name of his older daughter was Merab, and that of the younger was Michal. His wife's name was Ahinom, daughter of Ahimaz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Ner were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Well, hello again. If you've got your Bibles there, then um, please keep them open at that passage in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We've been working our way slowly through 1 Samuel for the past few weeks. I do encourage you, if you have your own Bible, to bring it along. It's always best to see where we're at in your own Bible and you become familiar with kind of words on the page and that's quite helpful in that regard. But we also have a bunch of Bibles in the foyer on your way in. You can grab them there as well. But, um, yeah, if you do have a Bible in front of you, it just helps you to follow along and to make sure that what I'm saying is what the Bible is saying. And there will also be a question time after the sermon, so any questions that come up on the way through, either keep them in your head or write them down and you can ask them later on. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we uh, spend this time now reflecting some more on this passage that we've just read in 1 Samuel, that you will help us to hear it with the ears of faith. And as a result today, that we will be people who do desire to live following your agenda and your purpose for our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what would it look like for you to be driven by God's purposes and God's priorities in your life? That is, that you live following God's agenda and not your own. Now, as I say that, what immediately comes to my mind is the person who goes as a missionary to you know, the farthest flung corners of the earth to tell people about Jesus and to commit them, their lives to, to that purpose. And that, that would be an example of that. But I want to suggest also that it should also land in the small details of your life and mine, in the everyday moments, that it will affect things like your joy and the, and the things that you're passionate about. It'll affect the things that you get angry about or sad about. It'll affect who you talk to after church and how you serve the people around you. It will affect all kinds of things, both big and small. And that's the question that we're looking at today. Am I motivated in my life by God's agenda 
or by my own agenda. Now, if if you've been here over the past few weeks as we've been looking at 1 Samuel, we've been witnessing the gradual unravelling of King Saul, Israel's first king. And the unusual thing about this passage is that Saul doesn't do anything today that is clearly disobedient or wrong. And yet at the same time, as we read it, it seems like everyone except Saul knows that there is something wrong with what he's doing. And what we're going to discover is that Saul is blinded by following his own agenda rather than seeking and trusting and following what God wants. So let's have a look at the passage. And and it seems to me that as we begin in verse 24, our passage begins in quite a surprising way given what happened last week in the verses just before what we read here. Because verse 24 begins with the words telling us that the Israelites were in distress that day. And I say that's surprising because that day that they were in distress was the day that God had saved Israel. God had given them an easy victory over the Philistines. He'd handed the Philistines to them on a silver platter. And yet we're told here in the very next verse that they were in distress that day. It literally says they were hard-pressed that day. And the last time we heard that the army was hard-pressed was back a page in my Bible in chapter 13 when they were vastly outnumbered by a huge Philistine army and the people were worried. Things were looking bad. And so you would expect to hear that the Israelites were hard-pressed in that situation. But now we're told that they're hard-pressed in victory. They're in distress in victory. What could possibly cause that? Let's read the rest of the verse, verse 24. The Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. You hear that? They're hard-pressed because of this oath that Saul has placed on the people. No one could eat until Saul had really driven home this decisive victory against the Philistines that he's aiming for. Now, to be honest, as I think about what, they, what he does here, I have absolutely no idea whether, tactically speaking, this is a good military strategy or not. Now, I'm no expert in military strategies, whether ancient or modern. But you know who was an expert in military strategy? in military tactics? Saul was the guy who made this oath. He was a good military commander. In fact, at the end of our passage over the page, we get a a summary of Saul's military resume, and it's pretty impressive. It says he fought Israel's armies on all sides and succeeded. It says wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them and that he rescued Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, that sounds pretty good. Saul was a good military commander. And as I think about what Saul says in this oath, I can imagine that potentially being a good military tactic. You know, the Philistines are on the run. The, the Israelites finally have the opportunity to take the advantage. They can, they can push hard and make the most of this situation and really inflict some permanent damage on the Philistines and maybe even get them out of Israel altogether, this occupying army, get them out of Israel. 
You know, I can imagine that being a good strategy. Sure, the men might get hungry, but that's not going to kill them, right? And we've heard of other situations where the army is forced to march through the night so they can be in place to fight a battle next day and they would have been tired, but that worked out fine. But right from the beginning, from the very first verse, we're told that this was a problem. Israel were in distress, even in victory, because of Saul's oath. For them, this victory feels like a defeat. Why? What's wrong with Saul's oath? Well, I think the reason, sorry, the clue is in the reason that Saul gives the the command. And you see that at the end of verse 24. Have a look again with me. This is what Saul says. Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Did you hear it? Before I have avenged myself on my enemies. I mean, there's not many more ways you can say me than he does in that sentence, right? Saul was driven by his own agenda, by his zeal for what he wanted and for his own glory that would come from that. He wasn't disobeying God by giving this command. God hadn't given any instructions about, about this. And as I said, you could possibly argue that this was not necessarily a bad military strategy. The problem, it seems from the very beginning, was that he was motivated by his own agenda. And as we follow the story from that first verse, that seems to be why this whole thing goes wrong from the start. And notice particularly, excuse me, notice particularly in comparison with Jonathan, his son, how what Saul says is different to what Jonathan said last week when he was fighting the Philistines. Have a look back in verse 6. <coughs> Sorry. Frog. Verse 6. Jonathan said to his armour bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You hear that? Jonathan was focused on being part of what God was doing, of part of God's agenda. But Saul was focused on carrying out his own agenda. And somehow for Jonathan, the right motivation led to the right decision. And for Saul, the wrong motivation led to the wrong decision. And as the passage continues, we see how this plays out, both in its consequences and in the way it continues to have an impact on Saul's decisions and his actions. We see that Saul is blinded by his own agenda. And that really is the overarching issue that hangs over this whole passage, where we see the the fallout of Saul's folly. So from the next verse, verse 25, we're told that Saul's son, Jonathan, had no idea about the oath that Saul had the command that Saul had given to the army. And so when he has the opportunity to grab a quick Winnie the Pooh style snack along the way, he takes it and the sugar hit gives him the energy he needs to keep going. But the rest of the men, we're told, were faint from lack of food. And that has limited their ability to really drive home and make the most of this attack, the advantage they have in the victory. And Jonathan knows that. And so he is scathing in his criticism of his father. 
For Jonathan, it was so obvious that Saul's oath was a bad idea. He says, look how good this was for me. If we all did this, the victory would have been so much greater. So one consequence was was that their victory wasn't as big as it could have been. And then next, from (coughs) verse 27, sorry, I'm on the wrong page, from verse 31, we see the unintended consequences when the men finally do start eating at the end of the day. They're like ravenous animals with no thought at all for what they're doing. They're that hungry. And as I think about that, it reminds me of a wedding that I went to years ago. It was a morning wedding and a lunchtime reception with a bit of a kind of a distance between the two. And so we turned up to the wedding reception quite hungry at lunchtime, except it was not lunch. It was just kind of, you know, waiters carrying around little bits of finger food. And, you know, beautiful setting, but not a lot of food. And... And everyone was starving, and so what happened was, whenever a waiter would come out with a little bit of food, everyone would just rush at them, and it became a free-for-all, everyone for themselves, and some people would completely miss out while other people kind of elbowed their ways in, and I'm ashamed to say I was one of those. But I wasn't the guy who, in his rush to get a bit of food, grabbed, I think it was a piece of sushi, and tried to dip it in the soy sauce that was on the tray there and dropped it and splashed this black soy sauce all over the nice white shirt of the waiter. As you can imagine, the waiter wasn't that happy. And I'm embarrassed as I think about how me and my friends behaved that day, all because we were a bit hungry. That was a a loss of manners uh, and loss of thoughtfulness. But for the Israelites, it was worse. They were breaking a well-established Old Testament law of God to not eat meat with blood still in it. Now Saul does the right thing and he takes quick action to stop the men from doing that. But do you think think this bloodied frenzy that he's just witnessed would give him pause to think about how his self-serving oath might have contributed to this problem, might have led to this problem? Well, it doesn't. In fact, He just continues to pursue his own agenda with no reference to God at all. Have a look at verse 36 now. So straight after this, Saul said, let's go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them until dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. You see, Saul doesn't even think to ask God what they should do. And so this picture of Saul that we're gradually beginning to see is that he has this thin veneer of wanting to honour and trust God. But when things get critical, he quickly abandons that because for him the circumstances, the situation is what's more important. Whether last week we see he was sitting around doing nothing because the Philistine army seemed too big and he couldn't do anything about it, or this week when he's charging in to attack the Philistines because it seems like he has the advantage and he wants to make the most of it. It seems like an easy win. Whenever the situation becomes critical, we see that that's what's really driving Saul. He's driven by his own agenda to glorify himself or by his own fears And that thin veneer, that thin layer of wanting to trust and honour God quickly vanishes. 
And I don't know about you, but as I hear that, I can't help but see myself in that situation. You know, when the situation in life becomes significant or critical, whether it's good or bad, that situation can burst through the thin layer that I've got on the top, saying that I do want to honour and trust God with my life. And instead, the situation is what becomes most significant. And that ends up being what drives me and drives my decisions and drives my reactions. And I wonder if you can identify with that. We'll come back to think about that some more a bit later on. But coming back to our passage, from verse 37 onwards, Saul continues to not see the problem. He listened to the advice to inquire of God, but God did not answer. And again, instead of considering whether he might be the problem, he goes on a witch hunt to find who it is that's stopping him from avenging himself on his enemies. So they cast lots and eventually Jonathan is chosen. Jonathan, the villainous honey eater. Jonathan, the only person in this story who has consistently trusted God in every moment. Is he the reason why God was silent? Is he the reason why God is not answering them that day? I mean, that's hardly seemed likely, does it? And it seems like everyone except Saul can see how crazy this is getting. But instead of backing down, Saul adds two more foolish oaths where he ends up swearing to God that he will kill Jonathan, his own son. This is how far Saul's self-serving agenda has taken him. And what a tragedy. But thankfully the men won't have it. They come in and they save Jonathan. They protect him. They resist Saul's command and rebel against him. And, and just take a moment to see, to try and visualise the situation that we now have at the end of this chapter and the division that we now have between the people and their king. First of all, we have Saul and Jonathan over here and the people over here. Then we have Saul here, Jonathan here, and the people here. And then finally, we have Saul over here by himself with Jonathan and the people over here. We have a complete breakdown of relationship between the people and their king, a complete division. And I think this breakdown between people and the king gives us a clue about the real reason why God did not answer them on that day when they tried to find out what God wanted. This is what God said would happen. This was the king they had asked for just a few chapters ago. And God warned them when they asked for a king that it would not be good for them. Do you remember what God said back in chapter 8 when they asked for a king? He said that king will serve his own agenda and he will do things that you don't like, like taking your sons into his army, which is exactly what Saul does in the very last verse of this chapter, verse 25, 52, sorry. What God said would happen is coming true. And you know what God said would be the consequence once they began to realise that this king was not all he was cracked up to be? God said this back in chapter 8, verse 18. He said, When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from this king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. 
So when you realise that this king that you want is not all you're hoping for, God will not answer you when you cry out to him on that day. And so surely God not answering them on this day and this division between the people and their king, surely that's the beginning of this prophecy starting to come true. And so as much as it is, an in, so it's, it's as much an indictment on the people who are asking for a king as it is on this king himself. This is the king that you asked for, God says. The people who are pursuing their own agenda now have a king who is pursuing his own agenda and it's bad for everyone. He's not outright disobeying God, as I said, but his motivation to glorify himself and not God shows up the foolishness of his actions and he just can't see it because he's blinded by his own agenda and the Lord is not answering them. What they needed was king and people both to be motivated by God's agenda and not their own. And as we've been noticing each week through 1 Samuel, this is what we see in Jesus and in how he calls us to follow him. You know, Jesus' every action, every decision was motivated by God's agenda. Even in situations where you could possibly justify doing something else. You know, when Jesus was starving in the desert and Satan was tempting him and Satan said to him, look, turn those rocks into bread. You can do that, right? Can you imagine Jesus justifying that? You know, man does not live by bread alone, but you do need some bread, right? Let's do that. And sometimes Satan would even quote scripture to Jesus to try and convince him to do what he, should, he wanted him to do. But Jesus knew that what Satan was offering was just a justification to be self-serving rather than honouring God. See, Jesus shows us the difference between someone who has a thin veneer of wanting to honour God while I pursue my own agenda compared to having that as my foundation. Because for him, every choice, big or small, bubbled up from that source. It made a difference in the big things. It sent him to the cross to die for your sin and mine. And it made a difference in the little things, like who he had dinner with. And that's the example that we're given to follow. He tells us, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all for the glory of God, even down to what food you eat or don't eat. You know, we've heard before in 1 Samuel that trusting God will mean that we obey him, even in difficult situations. But there will also be situations where there is no clear right or wrong thing to do and where it potentially doesn't really matter one way or the other. But what does matter in those situations is whether we are motivated by our own agenda or by what God wants, whether we are motivated to glorify and honour God. Just this morning over at the 8.30 service, we were singing a hymn and the chorus goes, glorify your name in all the earth. That's what we sang to God. And, And that kind of thing we sing in church a lot, right? But I wonder how much that idea actually filters out into the rest of our lives beyond what we sing about in church. Because sadly, if we follow Saul's example, 
we can end up with this terrible irony of a Christian who ignores God most of their life, most of the time. So, you know, I've, I've got a few Christian anchor points and morals in my life. I, I go to church, I pray, I try and be a good person. But other than that, I'm mostly driven by my own agenda. Do you see how what we're looking at today flips that around? From having a, a thin veneer of wanting to trust and honour God to actually having that as my foundation, the driving force behind what I do and don't do. See, if I'm motivated by wanting to trust and honour God, then it will spill out in all kinds of ways, both big and small. It will make me ask the question in every situation, what will be best for growing my faith and your faith and my neighbour's faith? How can I contribute to that? What will be good? What will help me grow my love for others and your love for others? What will help grow my godliness and yours? What will trusting God look like for me today? What a great question to ask as I wake up in the morning. What will trusting God look like for me today? And can you see how that will spill out into where I find joy and what I'm passionate about? What makes me angry or sad or, or not angry? Who I talk to after church? How I serve the people around me? Following our own agenda can blind us to what is good or not good. But following God's agenda will keep us looking for what is best in his eyes. And I thought I might finish by reading these verses from uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. It's a prayer that Paul prays, and it's a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves and each other. So I thought I'd finish with these words. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray that now. Heavenly Father, we do ask and pray that you will grow our love and our knowledge more and more. We ask that you will help us as we pursue that seeing your love for us and wanting to live according to that love and reflect that love, that we will know what is best and pursue that because we are living for your honour and your glory. And we ask that as a result, that it will produce glory to you, both in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.